go ahead and open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to the, the epistle of Titus, towards the end of your Bibles. We're not going to Ecclesiastes for the first time this year. And we have a very, uh, a very different book that we're about to engage with now as we turn the page. Ecclesiastes was very much like kind of fumbling your way through a fog, looking through the darkness to try to find a little bit of light. And Titus is almost like the opposite. It's, it's short, it's tight, and it is, it is condensed theology. It is um, Paul in his most concentrated form on full blast, uh, where the light is almost, almost blinding. Uh, so it's going to be a very different exploration, but it's going to lead us to very, very similar things, ultimately to our hope and rest in Christ. Because of the nature of Titus, because it's a short little letter that is incredibly dense, it's short and it's rich, um, I want to, before we get in and dive deep into little details, which we're going to start doing next week, I want to take this week as kind of an overview. I want to give you the background. I want to set the scene for where this letter even comes from. Um, you know, these letters did not start as a couple pages in your nicely bound Bible. Right? They're, they're real letters that were sent from real people to a real place who had real lives and real problems and real issues. And sometimes we are so removed from that, 2,000 years to be exactly, that it's easy to kind of forget that and kind of flatten it out and, and miss the richness of the context that really helps us understand what the letter is actually saying and what it actually means. And so I want to hope to, to kind of illuminate that background this morning so that we can see why this letter is so important for us today. 2,000 years later here at Covenant Grace, just as important for us as it was for the church in Crete that it was originally intended for. Right? There's 2,000 years between when they were planted and when we were planted. And yet we are far more alike than we are different from them. So we're going to start by looking at the context. We're going to look at who it's from, who it's to, where it's going to, and why that matters. What are some of the key things about that that shape and color this letter and what we're going to see in it? And then we're going to read it in its entirety. That's a little bit different. We don't usually do that, but that is actually really, really helpful to hear the whole thing, to, to see the ebbs and flows of the letter, to, to hear these little bits and pieces we take out, but to hear them within the whole flow. And to realize that this is generally how most people heard this for a really long time. People didn't have copies of their Bibles at home for a long time. They gathered together with the saints, and Titus probably got up in front, and he read this letter to the church and talked about it with them, right? And so we're going to kind of engage it that way, hear it the way that they would have heard it, take it in audibly in its full scope. And then I want to kind of do a flyover for you and talk about really what what is Paul trying to do with this letter? Like, what's his goal? What is his aim? And how that connects with us here 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. Because it connects incredibly closely. We need this letter and what Paul has to say. Let me pray for us and we'll get into it. Lord, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Thank you for this epistle in particular. Um, it's been incredible studying it and, and just finding so much richness that... Um, matters so much for us in, in our time and place and where we are as a church, where we are as a culture, where we are in the country. Uh, it's pretty remarkable uh, to see your living and active word um, not diminish in relevance with the years, but if anything, just grow. Uh, Lord, and we know that we need your help to rightly understand it. I need your help to rightly preach it. So I pray that as my words 
come, that they would be guided by your Holy Spirit, that they would be your words, and anything that isn't would be quickly forgotten and fade away. Lord, and that on the receiving end, our hearts would be soft, that we would be receptive to what you have to say to us, and you would help us understand, uh, Lord, and have, have this shape us as you desire it to. Let your word not return void as you promise. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's dive into kind of the background. What is this letter? Where does it come from? What's, what's going on? It didn't just show up in the pages of your Bible. It came from somewhere. And it's easy to just kind of sanitize it and feel like it's just this essay that you pulled up, you know, almost like a Wikipedia entry or something, right? And like, oh, here we go. And there, there it is. And that's all it is. And we can miss so much in the midst of that. Right? And so I want to draw out what this letter really is. Who wrote it? Why did he write it? Who did he write it to? Why did he write it to this guy? Why did he send it to this group of people? And what was going on with them? So the basics are that this epistle was written by the Apostle Paul. You've probably heard of him. He's a pretty, pretty well-known figure, right? He wrote a lot of epistles. Um, he's one of Jesus' apostles. And he writes it not specifically to the church, but to a particular person, to a guy named Titus. We don't know as well as Paul, but we're going to find out a little bit more about him as we look. But it's written to Titus for a church, specifically for the church at Crete. Crete's an isle about 100 miles south of Greece. It's a Greek island, but it's off the mainland coast. And um, Titus has basically been sent there by Paul to kind of continue work that he has begun in establishing the church there. So let's talk about some dynamics with Paul as he's sending it, some of the things that kind of shape what he's doing in this letter. And one of the things we need to realize is that this is written towards the end of Paul's ministry, right? Probably in between the first time he's a prisoner of Rome and the second time he's a prisoner of Rome. He was in prison, you know, he was in custody with Rome at least two times, possibly three. We're not totally sure on the last one, but we know for sure two. And this letter, along with um, 1 Timothy, was probably written in, the, in between those two imprisonments. So this is much closer to the end of Paul's ministry as an apostle and his going home to be with the Lord than it is towards the beginning. And that, that doesn't just matter for Paul, right? Paul is representative of this whole age of the church, this apostolic age of the church where Jesus has sent out apostles who witnessed him, who've seen the risen Christ, and he's establishing the church through their witness, right? This is a unique time in church history. There are no more of these apostles left. I am, I'm not one of those. I'm a totally different thing. And so is every other pastor, preacher, everything else. They are not these apostles. This is a unique time of establishing and laying the foundations of the church while the New Testament is being written by these same guys, right? So they're not only just church planting, but they're writing the doctrinal foundations based on what they saw in the life of Christ and what they were taught that is going to set up the church for the future. So as Paul is getting to the end of his life and ministry, it's also a transition point for the church. What is the church going to look like as this apostolic age ends, when all the people who die off, who actually saw Christ and saw him raised from the dead, is this thing going to continue? Is it going to be able to persevere once you lose that generation? That's very much on Paul's mind as his time begins to draw to a close. Another thing we need to realize with Paul is that he has... We don't have a lot of details about it in Scripture, but he's got a pretty decent history with this island of Crete. Uh, when he was first arrested by Rome, he got arrested, and then he appealed to Rome because he's a Roman citizen, so he can say, hey, I don't want to be tried by 
you know, you random governors off in these other places, I get to go to Rome and that's where I'm gonna go. Caesar's gonna deal with me because I'm a Roman citizen. So they have to take him all the way to Rome and in the midst of this, he gets into trouble on his boat. So they have to go around Crete on the south side to avoid some storms and stuff. And he actually, they stop and season in Crete for a while. So that's probably the first time, that's the first time we have recorded that he was in Crete. And that's just kind of his first exposure. And I think that's probably what sparks him going back later, right? Because we know later on he comes back, we don't know any of the details about it, but he comes back with Titus to build up and advance the church later. But I think that, that trip when he's imprisoned is what kind of sparks him. He sees that there's already some believers in Crete, which we're gonna see in a minute. There's believers in Crete from the very start of the church, from Pentecost, right? But, it, but when Paul goes there, he becomes aware of this and his, his heart, right, to see the church established and thrive is sparked for Crete. And it drives him to go back later with Titus. Which brings us to Titus, right? Who is, who is Titus? Well, he became a Christian through Paul's ministry early on, though, back in the early days. Paul had about seven years of ministry before he went to go see the other apostles in Jerusalem and kind of explain his ministry and tell them about it and make sure he was on the right track. Well, he brings Titus with him to that to show the other apostles how fruitful the gospel is being with the Gentiles and to show them, hey, this isn't just a Jewish thing. Like what you saw happen at Pentecost, like the church being started, this is happening all over in the Gentile world too. Look at Titus, this Greek guy, like he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's serving right alongside me. He loves the Lord. He's clearly been saved. Like this is not just a Jewish thing. Like Christ came to save a people for himself from all nations. And Titus bears witness to this through the work of the Spirit in his life. Right? And he becomes this beloved, trusted partner in Paul's ministry. Paul's got a few guys like this. Timothy, Titus, Silas. Barnabas is a, a little bit more of a peer, but these, are, these other guys are guys that Paul, really, he ends up leading to Christ, and then they become part of his team that go out and do ministry with him. And he, some of the words he uses for Titus, he calls him his son in the faith. He calls him his co-worker, his brother. He loves Titus, and he trusts him deeply. He's already sent him, by the time we get to this letter to Titus, he's already been sent by Paul to deal with some pretty sticky situations. Probably the, the biggest one was in Corinth. Uh, we've got two letters to the Corinthians in our New Testaments. There's another one that Paul references that we don't have that was in between. But one of the big problems that was going on in Corinth, they had a lot of problems, but one of the big problems was the fact that people had come in after Paul, after he'd come, preached the gospel to them, and they were undermining Paul, degrading Paul, saying he was fake. Paul wasn't particularly concerned with his reputation as much as the fact that that was undermining the gospel that he preached. And so he sends Titus to Corinth to carry one of these letters and to take care of this, right? He's like, these, the Corinthian church is in danger because the evil, wicked things that are being spoken by Paul are undermining the gospel that he preached. And so Titus, you need to go basically defend the gospel that we preached and put Corinth back on sound footing. That is a, that is a big thing. That was a tough ask and a very critical, very critical juncture for the church at Corinth. And Paul trusted Titus with that. And the church at Corinth actually thrived for quite a long time. So he was also a, a key part in this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. There was a big famine in Jerusalem early on in the days of the church. And Paul, uh, one of the things he had a heart for was, was raising money from the churches that were doing better to send back and to help these impoverished believers. And Titus had a deep heart for that too. 
And so he was really Paul's point man to kind of help facilitate that collection and to care for the church in Jerusalem. So he's been a, this trusted coworker by Paul for a long time. He has a lot of time with Paul. He knows Paul's theology really well, and Paul trusts him basically as an extension of himself. Paul can't be everywhere at once to do apostolic ministry. So like Titus, or like Timothy, like some of these other guys he walked with, he had other guys who were trained up and that he could trust, who could handle the gospel and correct error and help establish the churches. So that's important for us when we think about this letter being written to Titus. Sometimes we think Titus is like a local pastor. He's like me, but in, but in Crete. That's not the case. He's, he's different. He's, he's kind of an in-between between Paul and the apostles and, and what's going to come after. He's an extension of Paul's ministry. It's more of an apostolic thing. He's there to establish this church in Crete and then hand it off to pastors who are going to continue on the work going forward in the church. And so he's part of this transition that the church is going to go through from that apostolic age to the ongoing church that we are still a part of after those guys bear on and, and we rest and trust their witness that we have recorded in scriptures rather than having them here physically with us. Titus is part of that transition and that plan to, to establish that in Crete. And that's the last thing we need to talk about, Crete. So what's going on with Crete? Like I said, it's an island. It's not huge. It's pretty, pretty little. It's like 35 miles wide at the thickest. It's kind of long and skinny, kind of like Tennessee, but smaller, um, and a little over 100 miles across. So not, not huge. But it did have a thriving civilization there for a long time. But uh, thriving and thriving does not necessarily equal good in every way. Uh, Crete was a very, very difficult place. Um, there's some good history there, right? We read in Acts 2 that there were Cretans at, the, at Pentecost, and they were some of the ones who heard the gospel in their own language as Peter preached. They were some of those 3,000 who came to Christ as the church was established at the day of Pentecost. And they eventually would go back to Crete. So that's how the gospel originally came to Crete. It wasn't through Paul. It was through these, these believers at Pentecost from the very origin point of the church. But the place they went back to was very, very difficult ground for the gospel. Crete had a reputation, even, even not within the church, this wasn't just religious people who thought this, but just in general in the world of just being despicable people. Immoral, deceitful, double-faced, like they, you couldn't really have a much worse reputation as far as virtue and the type of people that they were. They themselves kind of claimed it. You know, Paul's gonna quote one of their own kind of poets to talk about who they are. And it's funny because he talks about them being liars and you don't know, well, if he's a guy from Crete, is he lying when he says that the Cretans are liars? It's a little, it's called the, uh, it's called, it's kind of a funny thing, right? But the bottom line is, is Crete is a place that where wickedness just abounds. There's no even veneer of trying to maintain a virtuous society. Good is not celebrated. It's all about get what you can get, however you can get it. And it's the type of place where every, nobody plays by the rules. Right, you're doing whatever you can, exploit whoever you can to get ahead. That is Crete. It is a, a very morally destitute place. And that's what these first Christians went back to. And so this kind of ties in with what we've seen Titus do in the past, getting sent to some hard places and some hard things. 
Um, after Paul left Crete, whenever that was, he left Titus behind because there was more work to do. And we're going to see what some of that work is as we get into Titus. This was a hard place to plant churches. This was a hard place for the church to get footing in part because of that culture. And there's for some other reasons too, because it wasn't just the immorality that was the problem. It was also some of the religious folks on the island too. There was resistance from both places that made establishing a church that would thrive and grow and do what a church is meant to do on Crete, an incredibly difficult task. And that's, the, that's really the occasion for this letter. Paul can't be there anymore, but he's writing to Titus to encourage him and to help instruct him on how, how to move that forward. How are you going to establish a church in this place, in the midst of all that's going on, in the midst of all the threats and dangers that the church faces, how are you going to establish it and lead it to a place where it can grow? What does that look like? Now, it's important before we read the letter to realize that even though this is a letter from Paul to Titus, it's written to Titus for the church. Um, and it, this becomes clear later on in the letter. There's a couple places where Paul says things explicitly to the whole church. Well, this was written to Titus, but now he's talking to everybody. It's, this is a little bit like, it reminded me of something from my time in the Marine Corps, right? We, in the military, you operate on orders. Everything you do is based on orders, right? So somebody up above you gives you an order. And usually I would just get orders from whoever's above me, and then I would give orders to the guys below me. But every once in a while, when there's something really significant, the guy above me would want me and all of my guys there for his order. Right? And what he wanted to do is he wanted to give me that order, but he wanted them all to hear it so that they knew exactly what we were trying to do so that they would cooperate and get on board with all the follow-on stuff I'm going to tell them. Right? He wanted to lend his weight to what I was going to do from that point forward to carry out that order. Right? So if he tells me to take the hill and all these other guys here, like, we have to take this hill, when I start giving smaller orders about how we're going to get that done, how we need to move forward to do that, he wants them to know that his full weight is behind me in those decisions, and they should cooperate with that. They should do what I'm asking them to do to make that happen. That's kind of what this letter looks like. Or if you had a, say you've got a babysitter coming over to watch the kids, and you're talking to them, giving them instructions, and you want the kids right there, so they know the expectations too. You're telling the babysitter what to do, but you want them listening in, right? Does that make sense? That's what this letter's like, right? He's telling Titus, hey, this is the stuff you need to do. This is what is going to set the church up well. Be on guard for this. Watch that. So that they, when they see these things happening, when they see divisive false teachers, they know they shouldn't get on board with that. That they should fall in line with Titus because that is not of the gospel. Right? All these different things. So we are, you're going to hear things that are directed to Titus very specifically or to elders or to specific groups of people. But we are all meant to listen in on this conversation. All the parts of the letter are really for all of us. And they color our understanding of the gospel and what it means to be faithful, be a faithful church. So there's no part of this that we get to check out of, right? This is not a letter just because it went to Titus. That's just for pastors. It's not just for particular people. This is for all of us. We all need this as a church. We all need to hear what Paul has to say to us. And that's what I want to do now, right? I want to just, now that we've kind of got the the painting, the background painted out, we're going to listen to this letter. And 
This can be a hard thing to do. This is not a long letter. It's going to take like six or seven minutes to read. It's, it's not big, but that can be a long time to listen to something. We're not a very auditory culture. So uh, kind of focus in. Bear with me. Try, try to focus in on this. Uh, but I think there's a lot to be gained from taking in the epistle this way. So let's read the epistle to Titus from Paul, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all, respect, all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness in worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person, person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so that's the letter. What's it about? What is Paul after with this, this letter to Titus? Well, I think it starts with verse 5 where Paul says, I'm writing to you that you might set, put what isn't remaining into order. And I think that's kind of like the thesis. If we, if we want to know what the rest of the thing's about, it's about this. That's what he wants from Titus. He's like, I want you to order the church. That word for put what remains in order, it's, it's a very unique word. It's the only place it comes uh, that it's used in the New Testament. But it comes from the same root that we get um, everything that starts with ortho, right? Like orthopedic. What does an orthopedic surgeon do, right? They, they fix your bones. They put things back into alignment. So the idea is to set something straight. Have you guys ever had a broken bone or known somebody with one that didn't get set right, right? What happens over time, right? Everything else, the muscles, the ligaments, everything else has to compensate for the fact that that bone isn't straight, that that, that's the structural element is not right. And so everything starts to get deformed and, and it doesn't work right anymore, right? To the point where it's in some instances you have to intentionally re-break the bone and reset it because it causes such a hindrance to the functionality. Right. And that's, that's sort of the picture here, right? It's the idea of, hey, there are, there are things that are not yet 
structurally sound that need to be there for this thing to flourish and to do well going forward. Right? And so that's what Paul, that's the, that's the main point of what he's saying. Like, hey, we need to get this, this church on solid footing. And really, it's a church plant. It's not even a church yet. Same reason we're a, still a church plant. They don't have everything that a fully formed church needs yet, right? Specifically, they don't have elders yet. So he's saying, hey, like, this is still a church plant. This is what you need. This is what the church needs to go forward well. So it's time to move forward on that. Right, so he's writing to Titus to encourage and instruct him how to set this young, fledgling church. Even though it's been around for a while, it's, it's slow, hard going in Crete. How do you set this thing up? How do you set the foundation where this thing can grow and flourish? And by grow, I mean grow in the sense, not in the sense of just pure numbers or anything like that, but grow in the sense that God would use it. Grow in the sense that it is spiritually healthy. People are trusting in Christ, and from that rest, they are following and obeying, and they're continuing to love their neighbors. Right? So, so how do you set this church up for grow, for growth? And and this foundation is particularly important in Crete because of what they're facing. Right? There's a reason that this is still in the church plant stage and not a fully formed church. The resistance and the threats and the dangers to this church are heavy. You picture a little tiny like seedling of a plant, and, but just surrounded by weeds and all sorts of things that want to choke it out. That is really the church in Crete. And it really comes from, from two sides. One has its roots in the world that they operate in, right? The, just the general culture of Crete. We, we talked about that a little bit already. It's a culture that promotes vice instead of virtue. It calls what is evil good, and it disregards what is good as useless. The only seeming way to survive and thrive is to be more ex, uh, exploitive and deceitful than the other guy. And if everybody cheats, the one who plays by the rules is at a big disadvantage, right? That's the kind of culture that exists there. And so living in that day to day, living in a place where everybody completely disregards basic morality, right? Basically, there's a complete disagreement with what God says is right, and you live in that day after day, all the time. That press of that is exhausting, right? Exhausting. It's so much easier to go with where the culture goes. It just, you just drift there. It's like gravity. You just go there naturally. And so to constantly be in that place of resistance, like, no, that is, that is not right. What God says is right, not what the Cretans say is right. And to constantly hold that line when you're just surrounded by nobody who buys it, who nobody who does it, and they seem to be doing just fine. It's like this low-grade burn that just drains and exhausts you spiritually and wears you down. And it's not like it's just some sudden compromise where all of a sudden you're just biting the whole thing hook, line, and sink. But maybe one little thing gives just a little bit because that relieves just a little bit of the pressure, right? If we just give on this thing and go with them on that, then it's a little less exhausting. Like I can breathe a little bit easier, right? And when you are in this for 10, 20, 30 years, it's so easy for that to slide in. It is incredibly hard to be in the world and not of the world. It's easier to escape the world, avoid the world altogether, wall yourself off, or to just be of the world, just do their thing. Those are the, those are, that's easy. Either one of those is easy, easy answer. But that is not what the church is called to do. 
We are to be in the world. This came out of our sermon last week. We are left here. The reason we are not in the presence of God right now is because we are here for the good of the world, because we are the embassy of the gospel that proclaims forgiveness for sinners. We can't proclaim forgiveness to sinners if we're not with sinners. But we also don't get the option to become them. Right? We don't get the option to buy into their way of life. Right? We have to be in the world and yet not of it. And that's hard. Paul knows it's hard. And so how do you, how do you equip a church for that? Right? How do you brace a church to be able to stand under that weight and to continue to do what they are called to do? That's what Titus is about. That's one of the things he's thinking about when he says, hey, sets what's remaining in order. It's it's guarding against this this lawlessness that could creep into the church. Antinomianism is the fancy theological word for it, where we disregard what God says is right. We disregard what God says is true. Sometimes under the guise of grace, right? Which is not at all what grace means. But it's interesting. So he doesn't guard against, the way you guard against this, the way you set this straight is not by swinging the other way and dropping the hammer of the law, right? And all law. And you don't withhold grace to keep this from happening. The antidote to lawlessness is not more law. It's not legalism. Paul's just as concerned with that for this church, actually, right? Because there's, there's two different concerns, but they're really, they're allies, they're friends, they're not opposites. One is lawlessness, one is becoming like the world, giving into the pressure of the world. The other one, and sometimes it's a reactionary thing, is to give into legalism, to, with, with, to minimize grace and inject works back into our salvation. And there are teachers who are troubling the church with this. Paul talks about the circumcision party and these concerns about Jewish myths and festivals. These are different aspects of legalism that are being taught and brought into the church. And Paul says this is troubling the church. It's rocking their assurance. They are getting confused about the very nature of their salvation because these things are being brought in. It's obscuring and distorting the good news of the finished work of Jesus by injecting merit, our own merit, not Jesus' merit, back into it. And it turns out this, this kind of legal preaching, it sells, right? They're, they're gaining from it. Whether it's monetarily or it's a following, this kind of thing sells really, really well. If you give people rules to fix their lives, you can make a lot of money, right? There's all kinds of people who do it and make really good livings. We want that. Our flesh craves that. Just tell me what to do. Tell me how to fix everything, and then I will. And so you've got these people coming in and bringing in these legal aspects and corrupting the gospel with them. And I bet it sells really good against the background of Crete where everybody's going crazy, right? You throw a little bit more log in and the law into the background of a crazy immoral society and it looks pretty good. But Paul doesn't hold back here at all when it comes to, to this either. Those who undermine the gospel of grace or stir up division in Christ's church should find absolutely no quarter within the church. So setting, up the church, setting the church straight involves Titus protecting her from, from these such things and raising up others who can do the same. So raising up others who can see through this and defend the church 
against corruptions of the gospel. Because the reality is this lawlessness and legalism are not opposites. Right? They're, they're actually, they come from the same exact root. You know, don't think of a spectrum, think of a, think of a loop. And they end up meeting together on the backside. Because they both flow from the same place. And that's human pride. Whether the pride shows itself and you get to be a law to yourself. You get to decide what is right and wrong. You know, whether it comes in the guise of the culture or not. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're saying, I am the authority. I can decide what is good to pursue and what is wrong to pursue. That's sourced in pride. And legalism is just as well. Because that is sourced in pride in thinking that you can perform something, anything good enough to merit something good from God. They are both rooted in arrogance, just the same way that the first sin that led to the fall was. That longing to be like God, take his place here. Both these things that seem like opposites on the surface, they're actually allies in driving us away from the gospel of Christ and full dependence on his work for us. Did you guys ever play Red Rover when you were younger? A game like literally designed to hurt people. You know, you hold, hold hands in line across from each other and then Red Rover, Red Rover sends somebody over and you run full speed right at somebody's arms and you know, see whose joints give out first. It's a great game. You used to love it, right? Well, legal, uh, legalism and this lawlessness or antinomianism are kind of, like, they're kind of like Red Rover, right? They're holding hands right here and the church is running and just getting clotheslined by the two of them. Holding there. They are allies. They have the same goal. They both undermine the gospel. And because of that, they're utterly fatal to the church. Utterly fatal to the church. And so this whole letter is constantly Paul bringing Titus back to guard the church against these things. Put things in place that will guard and protect her from these things. Because these things will kill her. They will kill her. Even when they, sometimes they, they look, especially the legalism. It looks well-motivated. So a lot of times it comes up from a desire of like, I want to see people do good and not be bad. So let me make it hinge on them. Right? But the bottom line is, you can't law people into true obedience. You can't do it. Paul talks about how the law, all the law can do is show you what is right. It has no power to actually produce that which it demands. It can only condemn So those are the kind of two defensive ways that things that are involved in setting the church straight. But this is not all defense, right? The church is not just kind of sitting there trying to survive and defend. Like we have been given a mission and a calling. We have a purpose in this world that is proactive, right? We're not just sitting there trying to survive and make it. We're here for a reason. We're here for a reason. To trust Christ, to proclaim his finished work for sinners, and to love our neighbors until he comes back. So it's simply guarding from errors is not enough. Titus also needs to, to put things in place to positively build the church up in the gospel of grace. The church cannot simply avoid the world. She has to live faithfully in it. It's not enough to simply dodge legalism, but we need to grow. We need something that will grow and flourish a genuine obedience. Pursuing the right things is a grateful privilege. So it turns out that the defense against legalism and lawlessness, 
the things that threaten the church, and the fuel that drives her positively forward in her mission are one and the same thing. They are the grace of God that comes to us through Christ. The grace of God that comes to us through Christ. And Paul's going to circle back to this. And it, There's really three beautiful passages in Titus where he just lays this out. We'll get the first one at the very beginning next week. Right? And there's one in chapter 2 and one in chapter 3 where he brings us back to this. That it's, it is the grace of God. The, the answer is not less grace and more law. The answer is understanding what grace actually is and all that it does. And fully, like, just wallowing in it, right? Not less grace, more grace, real grace. Not the fake, cheapened, impotent, counterfeit graces that lawlessness and legalism offer. He's going to code to this over and over again, compelling Titus and this church at Crete to relentlessly cling to and be shaped by true grace, the grace that has come to us in Christ. In Titus 2, he puts it this way, Ellis, he says, grace trains us. And he goes on to talk about the things that he trains us away from and the things that it trains us to. Grace is what trains us. Grace is what shapes us and molds us and brings us to maturity and brings out these good things that ought to come out. This good fruit that ought to come out of the gospel. It's grace that does that. True grace is what secures the church against this kind of fake, counterfeit, blank check grace of lawlessness. Because that's basically what lawlessness says. Like, oh, you're, you're fine. You're good. You're just, do whatever you want to. You're not going to get punished for it. That's not grace. That's a, that's a really bad copy. That's like monopoly money. Grace. And then legalism just takes grace away, pulls it away, and makes whatever's left impotent because it's not grace anymore, because it's full of so much merit and so much earning. The law can never get us to what the church is supposed to be, to true obedience and the faithful Christian life. So the overarching, the overarching message of this epistle to Titus is guard the gospel of grace because the gospel of grace is what grows the church. The gospel of grace is what grows the church. The gospel of grace is what secures you and protects you from the things that undermine your faith. The gospel of grace is what forms you and leads you into true, genuine obedience, true, genuine love for God and love for neighbor. Nothing else can do it. This is the only source of it. All right? And he is going to relentlessly, relentlessly drive us back to that because he knows that we, in our flesh, we are pulled towards the other two, right? There is a gravitational pull towards lawlessness and towards legalism. We want both of those things. We want to decide and do whatever we want to do. We want to do whatever we feel like. And then on the other hand, we want to flip it around and we want to feel like we've accomplished something and we've done something good and that we're approved because of what we've done. We want the glory of that. We want both of those things in our flesh, and there's always the temptation to be pulled towards one of them. And they both shipwreck the gospel. And that's why this letter is, letter is so unrelenting in grounding us in the true grace that is ours in Christ. And, and church, I don't want you to miss the parallels of the church at Crete to, the, to us. Right? This, this is why I decided to preach this book, to be honest with you, because I was studying it on my own and I was just blown away. We, we, we are... There's so many similarities in Lionstar. We need the exact same 
stuff. We're, we're a young church. We are a church plant. We are still in the process of being established. And some weeks it seems like there's a lot of people here, but we've only been around for a year. We're still working on raising up elders within the church. We don't, we're not fully formed. We are a church plant, not a, not a church yet. So we are very much in this stage that the church in Crete's at, where we are still being formed. We are still being established. We are trying to set things in order that are going to allow this church to flourish as a true church for the long term, right? We are in that stage. And so we need the exact stuff that, that Paul is giving to Titus. We need that as a church because we're in that same stage of our life. And much like Crete, we are a church operating in a world that is increasingly hostile to what God calls good, that increasingly flips good and evil on their head and tries to invert them, celebrates evil as virtuous, and derides those who would stand for actual righteousness. And, you know, it seems like we're going to just face increasing pressure all the time to curtail, to change what God has called us to, to change the definitions of what is right and what is good and what is wrong. It doesn't seem like that's going the other way anytime soon. So in some ways, we are in a very similar culture to Crete, right? Where we are very, very much in the world, neck deep. And we don't get to leave, but we don't get to go the easy route and just go where the winds blow us and take us. Right? We have to hold firm and to trust what God says is right and pursue what he says is good, not what our world says is good. And we need to be equipped for that. We need to be equipped for that because that's hard. It's, we're foolish if we don't acknowledge that. That's a hard thing to do. It's hard to swim against the tide. But I think the connections continue even further. Because here in Colombia, like we are, the place of our sojourn here in this particular spot is a place where legalism and distortions of the gospel run rampant. To be honest with you, it's, honestly, it's one of the things that sparked the church plant here. When I was just beginning to look at Colombia, of those who identify as Christians in Colombia, nearly half, just under a half, 48% identify with denominations that explicitly preach legalism. I'm not talking about that it creeps in. It's, it's part of their doctrine. They will tell you, yes, trust Christ, but do these other things or else you're in trouble. Half of the people who claim to be Christians based on the last data for that kind of thing. That's incredible. And just because there's a church on every corner does not mean the gospel is faithfully upheld and that the true church is, is functioning well. Right? So we have that same, that, that threat too, right? Not just the worldliness, but the, the threat of the legalism, the threat to inject some of our merit back into the gospel, to embrace some kind of Jesus, Jesus plus standing before God. The Paul says if we teach that, whoever does should be accursed. That's what Galatians is all about. So Paul's words 2,000 years ago are just as timely for us today as they were when he penned them to Titus. As we aspire to be established as a true and faithful church, right? that's what we want. 
We have no other agenda than that, right? We want to be a church where the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ is proclaimed, where you can rest in that, and then from that rest, you can take that good news to your neighbor and love them and care for them until Christ takes us home. That's all we're doing here. There's no other agenda, period. That's all we want to do. But we have to be honest about the challenges to that. There are so many off-ramps. There are so many ditches to fall into. And we need the humility to acknowledge that. We need the humility to, to recognize that we need what Paul is imploring us to have. We need what he's giving us, this grounding that holds us fast to that place. We can't do this arrogantly and think we've got it. We've got it all figured out. We're better than all the other churches. Of We're not. We are not better. If we are faithful, if we do what God calls us to do, it is by the sheer grace of God. We are totally dependent on him and the work of his spirit in us. Church, and that's why I want to look at this letter together. Because this is, his, this is a gift to us as his church. This is a gift to us. As he instructs Titus on how to ground and secure that church in Crete so that it can be a faithful witness for the gospel where people, where sinners can find rest and forgiveness and where believers pursue true good and sacrifice themselves for the true good of their neighbor. If we're going to be that kind of place, then we need everything Paul talks about in this letter just as much as the Cretans did. So we face the same pressures, the same threats, the same temptations but church, the good thing is that we have the same gospel. We have the same gospel. We have the same good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. Amen, the same Savior who came to take our sin to a cross to die the most horrific death that you deserved and to bear that for you. And not only that, but then to wrap you in the robes of his perfect, spotless righteousness so that you can stand before him on judgment day, as we talked about last night, rejoicing because you get to enter into life on his coattails. And that gospel is the power of God, Romans tells us. It is the very power of God. It is more than enough to overwhelm the draw of the world and the allure of our performance. It is more than enough, and it will faithfully hold us until we get home. So to look at the circumstances, to look at these threats and these dangers, is not a despairing thing. If it depended on us, if it depended on anything other than the grace of God, we would be right to despair. There's not enough strength in here to think that we would do that, that we would do that well. We're not better than so many that have failed and have compromised and have fallen off and have gotten distorted. We're not. We are wholly dependent on the grace of God to sustain us, to keep us. And the glorious thing is that he has. Individual churches have risen and fallen. The gospel has gotten greatly obscured at certain times in church history, but the church has outlasted every human regime in existence. No empire has lasted as long as Christ's church has had. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of compromise, in the midst of horribly getting off track, God has sustained and kept his church by the power of his gospel. That is our hope, church. That is where we lean. That is where we depend. And the beauty and glory of this letter is that it's going to drive us to that over and over and over again.